Hey guys, and welcome to the Because Maybe podcast, the podcast that takes a look at all things 90s and answers some of the most important questions of the decade. Because maybe a $5 shake should contain bourbon. I'm your host, John Connolly. Thank you for whoever you are, wherever you are, for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. And this is our season finale. Yes, the end of season one is here. This is the last episode of 2017. We are going to be talking about Pulp Fiction. I'm joined by the great Molly Watson, who's going to go into details with that. Uh, We have an update on the second season, but we'll get to that at the end of the show. And our sarcastic team comes back and gives us a little bit of festive cheer to ring out the new year. Guys, if you're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, look us up because maybe pod. We post a lot of stuff on there. I know the last couple of weeks we haven't been active, which I'll explain at the end of the show, but we are going to pick it up uh, during our break. Uh, also, if you are uh, a blog reader, look at becausemaybepodcast.wordpress.com. That's where we have some of our uh, written words for those people who don't necessarily want to listen to us. And, of course, we have our YouTube channel. Search Because Maybe Podcast. We have sample content, smaller bite-sized portions of the show, and just some extra content to get, you know, just to get you through something that's not on the main feed. But I have a lot that I want to say, and I don't want to kind of bore you before Pulp Fiction. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive straight into Pulp Fiction, and I will explain everything about the new season at the end of the show and everything that I just want to get off my chest in a good way about the future of the podcast. So for now, Pulp Fiction. Review Corner, the big screen. Okay, this week on Review Corner... We take a look at one of the greatest movies of the 90s and one of the greatest movies of all time. And I am delighted to be joined for the first time this season, hopefully not for the first time, not for the only time, Molly Watson. Molly is a fantastic, fantastic fiction lover, and she knows the insides and outs of everything fiction. It's great to have you on board today. Thank you so much for, for letting me join you. I'm, now, I'm so excited. If you recognize the voice, Molly was a part of our Freddie Mercury piece. and uh, Molly has been one of the people helping me uh, get this podcast up and running and getting it to where it is. And uh, we wouldn't be here without, like I said, Molly, without Greg, without Sarah. So it's great to finally have you on board. And it's great to have you talking about something that you came to me when you saw the list and said, man, I want to talk about this film. Oh, absolutely. It's 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 one of my favorite movies. I, there's just no if ands, buts about it. It's, it's a fan- it is it is a fantastic movie and it's, it's got a lot of weird background and weird ways into it which we'll get into here in a minute but uh, we are talking about pulp fiction uh, I didn't mention that at the beginning that's fine uh, <laughs> we're talking about pulp fiction pulp fiction is to movies what Shakespeare is to theater in my opinion oh absolutely it's um it does things that books could never do you couldn't tell the same story. On paper. On paper. Well, and that's ironic, really, because the, the 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 way this was written was comparing it to writing a book where you could have multiple narratives going on at the same time. Yeah. Um, I know you've read the uh, Game of Thrones series. I know that's not the official name of it, but the TV show is called Game of Thrones. So that's what I'm referring to it as. Absolutely. Uh, I've tried to read it. I've read maybe half the prologue before I gave up because I couldn't follow it. It's but, difficult, yeah. But those are the kind of books that have two or three full things going on at the same time, and that's what Tarantino wanted to do with this movie. So we're going to go in, we're going to look at everything, we're going to look at the cast, we're going to look at behind the scenes, and we're going to have some fun doing this. So Pulp Fiction is a crime noir drama with comedy elements. Do you agree with that? I would. Uh, when I first watched this movie, I certainly would not have called it a, a comedy at all, no. just because of the scope of it but um the older i get the more i watch it as an adult the funnier it is yeah it's one of those movies that um it's not meant to be funny but it's naturally funny yes i mean there's humor in there in 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 some of the in some of the scenes that was i guess was intended to be written as light-hearted but not intentionally meant to be funny which is the good which is a good thing within a lot of comedies to in a lot of comedies not not necessarily this kind of movie the, the more natural it feels the better the dialogue becomes and so i think only one joke was said in the whole movie and it was the the Uma Thurman joke about ketchup yes and it was the worst joke of the whole movie but oh, i loved it it felt Nothing felt contrived. The no. comedy was never forced. The delivery is what made it yeah. funny, among friends funny. Yeah, and I mean, everybody everybody got into the character as well, by the, by the looks of it, which we'll oh, get yeah. to here in a few minutes. Um, this is director Quentin Tarantino's second movie. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, hang on, he had the room around about this time, but he only directed a portion of the room. That's what a lot of people don't seem to remember. Uh, it was written by Quentin Tarantino with some writing credits to Roger Avery. Uh, Roger Avery wrote 
Um, I can't remember what he wrote. It's not in my notes. Ha! Huh. Oh well. Uh, <laughs> live television, folks. Live live radio. I can't. I I'm not looking it up. But um, <laughs> he wrote a movie with Tarantino. Uh, coming out that year. Okay, they wrote True Romance together. I love True Romance. True Romance is a great movie. My gosh. But um, because he only wrote it, he didn't direct it. They, they only wrote it. But um, a lot of this movie was written. In and around, in between Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, and you know the time it was, and both the guys, even though Tarantino's credited as as the main writer, uh, Avery's contribution is significant to it. Oh right, so yeah. It's the uh, it's the whole it's the whole beginning of the Bruce Willis uh, area, the the, uh, the Gold Watch. So um, it was produced by Lawrence Bender and Quentin Tarantino uh, through their Bender Part Production Company, distributed by Miramax. So that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. I don't want to wade into uh, into any debates and so on and so forth. Uh, it was released in October of 1994 and made a profit of $205.4 million. As it should. As it's it just should. a testament to how good of a movie it was. The, the ty- That type of movie making that much of an impact at the box office. Now, I know there's a lot of people listening right now going, $200 million, that's not that much. But when you consider that this isn't a blockbuster, this isn't a superhero movie, this isn't, you know... This wasn't heavily, heavily, heavily advertised. No, it's a, it's a, it's a cult niche classic. It's it's R-rated. Yeah, it's it, lucky it's R-rated. You know, it could have got NC seventeen easily. Absolutely. Um, the critics on IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, and the Journalometer gave this a ninety-three out of a hundred. I think that's a very, very fair score myself. I do too. A little bit low, in my opinion. I would have put it at a ninety-five. Yep. That's just, that's my unprofessional, professional opinion. But then again, you were the expert in fiction. Oh, so. true. <laughs> so let's look at, at how this movie came about. Because, you know, Tarantino is a genius, but he didn't just walk up on set one day and say, this is what we're shooting. There is a big kind of timeline uh, from 1990 right through to January 1993 of how this movie came to be. Uh, Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery wrote uh, a pair of stories pair of shorts, maybe about 35, 40 minutes a piece. And they knew that nobody's making those kind of things anymore. So the idea was to write a third short with a third director and do that movie. Mm-hmm. So, um, but what happened was the pair of them started expanding on their stories and expanding on their stories and expanding on their stories. And Quentin Tarantino's portion actually became Reservoir Dogs. Another great movie, fantastic movie. But it's, it's early Tarantino. I mean, I love Tarantino's early work. I, I've watched a bunch of his new work, but up to Kill Bill, man, he was... He's the man. hes He, he has oh, to be. Yeah, oh, absolutely. He has to be considered. Um, but uh, Roger Avery's portion became, as I mentioned, the uh, portion of the Gold Watch, which is like um, all of Bruce Willis and his girlfriend scenes in the movie were written by Roger Avery and they were kept in there. Uh... Tarantino compared this to writing a book, saying, and I quote, I got the idea of doing something that novelists get a chance to do, but filmmakers don't. Telling three separate stories, having characters float in and out with different weights depending on the story. That's novel writing summed up beautifully in this little condensed package. But Tarantino is so talented at being super subtle in his casting choices and everything. So he did what novelists couldn't do. In the authentic telling of this story, because yeah, that's and that's that's one of the things. A lot of people will ask me why I prefer film to to books. I've got no problem with books. Don't get me wrong. And you know, uh, imagination is important when it comes to the written word. But at the same time, one of the reasons I prefer films is because when I read these books, I can't visualize to the detail that somebody like a Quentin Tarantino or Robert Rodriguez would put into the movie. Absolutely. And you can only half kind of do it, which is, you know, one of the reasons why, like, I like reading books that were movies first. Even though they were based on a book, I'll read the the, the book with more of a depth of what I'm seeing because I can see the character's face, I can hear the character's voice and so on and so forth. I'm not very good at making it up in my head. But um, this, I think this would have been a good book because there's a lot of stuff that could have been used. And uh, Reservoir Dogs is in the same fictional universe. Oh, yes. Um, uh, Reservoir Dogs Kill Bill is in the same fictional universe and we'll we'll get into that here in just a second and it's revolving our two friends Jules and Vincent um, the final draft of the script was written between March 1992 and January 1993 uh, that was when Reservoir Dogs was in production 
being promoted, and Tarantino spent basically a few months in the Amsterdam Red Light District doing what you do in the Red Light District. Hey, what you gonna do? Win in Rome, right? <laughs> Win in Amsterdam, try on the clogs. Um, <laughs> but um, this movie was written 153 pages, which is huge for a 90-minute movie. Is it? Yeah, it's usually... Now, I could be completely off-base, but I remember reading that a 90-minute movie is around about 120 pages, and this was 150 pages, which is why it extended beyond 90 minutes eventually. Because, again, back in the day, kids, in the 90s, uh, movies were about 90 minutes apiece, 90 to 100 minutes apiece, an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, maybe. Just extra long TV show. And now your average movie is about two and a half, three hours long, Oh yeah, I like the epic, the super long director's cuts. <laughs> so I don't, I, I honestly don't know how long average movies are <laughs> these days. Sarah went to watch um, the new Thor movie a couple of weeks ago and spent seventy five dollars for three three tickets. I can't imagine spending that much to go see a movie. I, yeah, I just, that's that's I just three can't. tickets, popcorn, and yeah. Oh, I was not happy. Oh, <laughs> I didn't want to. The thing is, I didn't want to watch it though. I'm not. I'm not a big superhero. Oh well, there you go. Um, <laughs> But Miramax picked up this film after TriStar turned it down, which is kind of good in a way because, you know, one thing about Miramax, which is a good thing that they did, let, you know, let, let's leave the, 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 the horrible stuff that is that the executives have done to people aside for just a second. When it comes to the artistic integrity, they kind of reminded me a lot of uh, British independent music labels. And what I'm, I know that sounds like I'm making a stretch, but it was the ethos that the artist is always correct. Oh yeah. So they gave Tarantino, they gave Tarantino a check, and they said go make your movie, and they didn't give him really any restrictions on what he could or, or couldn't do. Whereas, say, Tristar would have completely and utterly sent suits down every day, telling him you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. I need you, to, you, you know. Yeah, and and. If any of the grit would have been removed, it would have been a completely different movie. Yeah. And it probably wouldn't have done as well. No, it, w- it wouldn't have done as well. I mean, a lot of the scenes, too, you couldn't have done with a studio executive breathing down your neck. No. uh, The Zed's Dead scene? Yes. Come on now. <laughs> get people down here with a blowtorch and a pair of pliers. I mean, that would not fly. Um... <laughs> no, the the imagery alone. Yeah would have been enough to get production at least shut down for the day. Yeah, definitely. I mean we'll get we'll get to one here in a minute. This was a low budget movie for its time and I think its scope too. Uh it only got an 11 million dollar budget, which again is not that is not that much. Oh my gosh, I I didn't know it was that little. I mean to, to compare to comparison, 12 years later they made Clerks 2 for 5 million dollars. You know, so um, but a lot of that a lot of that budget went on salaries of the actors, with the exception of say John Travolta, who only got like a hundred. I think it was a hundred grand or hundred and fifty grand to appear in the movie. But he, that this movie was kind of an investment for him in his career. Right. Who was the highest paid? Um, I think the highest paid was naturally Bruce Willis, which is ironic because both of them were coming off of. Real, real bad movies. You know, Bruce Willis, Die Hard aside, his movies were, were, were coming off awful. John Travolta's movies were dreadful. They both kind of had a limited success with with the Look Who's Talking series. Because uh, I think, I don't know which one of them was the dead and which one of them was the kid. I can't, I, it's been so long since I saw those movies. All I know is Kirstie Alley and either Travolta or Willis played the dead and Travolta or Willis played the kid. Yeah, but like I said, the majority of the budget went on actor salaries. I think the biggest uh, set that they built was the Jackrabbit Slim set, which was like 150 grand, and they built it in a warehouse somewhere. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, if they ever made a, th- a restaurant chain called Jackrabbit Slims, I would eat there every night. I was so disappointed when I realized that that was a fake restaurant. Yeah. I was. I asked Dad all the time, take us to Jackrabbit Slims. We'll have such a great time. Buddy Holly will be there. <laughs> I was devastated. <laughs> I, I, I was devastated, too. I mean, because, again, I grew up in Britain. Molly grew up in the south, and Molly is just a hair younger than the rest of the rest of us folks. Um, Molly is a 90s baby rather than a 90s kid. So, yes. <laughs> but Molly is knowledgeable about fiction and the subjects that we speak about. That's one of, that's one of the reasons why she is here. Uh, the casting, as we mentioned, had to be important for each uh, specific character. Every character had to be cast just right, not just in terms of the character they portrayed, but the chemistry they had to have with everybody else. That's one of the great things about this movie. 
everybody has some kind of chemistry with everybody else on that scene, whether it's the hostility that Bruce Willis and John Travolta have, the connection that uh, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta have. Just everybody kind of, you know, they all even, mesh perfectly. Even with the extras and stuff, the yep. the intimidation factor had to be there too for the scenes to be pulled off. Yeah, because I mean, Tarantino was a, was a was a young director at the time. Let's let's say, I mean, I'm not talking about his age, but I'm talking about in his movie I was completed. So. But he was also—he's also a perfectionist, so he—he mm-hmm. he definitely kind of intimidated the people he worked with. But that's the reason why he worked with a lot of the same people. They went back to him rather than him going to them. Although he—he he did in a, in some cases. Oh yeah. Um, but for example, John Travolta was the second choice to play Vincent Vega. Uh, that was originally supposed to be played by uh, Michael Marsden, who played Mr. Blonde in Reservoir Dogs. Ah. Okay. Now it turns out that Tarantino kind of has, has twisted this just a little bit in a good way uh, to say that Vincent Vega is the brother of Mr. Blonde. So my question is if Michael Marsden had come in, would he have been playing Mr. Blonde just with Samuel L. Jackson driving around the place? The world may never know. The world may never know. There was, and I'm. it's a shame that both the actors aged like they did. Because yeah. Tarantino wanted to do a prequel called Vega Brothers. With both of them, but unfortunately... That would have been so good. That would have been good, but unfortunately both of them aged sadly like milk. Um, oh. Which, you know, that's not, that's not a bad thing, but you know, no, you, you no. can't play somebody younger if you look 20 years older than, than you know. Samuel L. Jackson. This is, an, this is another thing, too. You can't picture Pulp Fiction without Samuel L. Jackson. No. He almost lost the role. He, uh, the legend is that he went to an audition under the assumption it was a read-through. The other legend is that the person who auditioned with him was so good at his audition that they almost hired him. It was uh, Paul Calderon. Uh, he is in Pulp Fiction. He's in the movie. He plays uh, Marcellus Wallace's bodyguard and, and bartender. Yeah, I'm Paul. This is, this is between y'all. That's him. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I didn't. I, I, I'm learning stuff today. I didn't know that. But uh, Tarantino wanted Jackson to, to re-audition because he wrote the part specifically for him. And I think it was a good, I, th- I think it was an ultimately a great decision that he convinced him to re-audition because with all respect to Paul Calderon, who's a great actor, he oh, is yeah. a great actor, but he's not Samuel L. Jackson. Very few people are. Samuel L. Jackson is probably my favorite actor in the history of acting that I've seen. And his serious roles I prefer over his more, I don't want to say comedic, but his more over the top roles. Oh yeah. Not over the top like Jim Carrey, but I mean the snakes on a plane thing. I mean, come on, you know. But um, so that that was really really a pivotal point in uh in the movie, you know, because with without the right people, I don't think it would have. Even though Paul, even though, again, he's a great actor, but I don't think it would have worked. I don't think it would have worked either at all. So, what is this movie about? Well, very very quick plot. Uh, no spoilers, but then it's a twenty year old movie, and we've probably all seen it anyway. Uh, Jules Winfield and Vincent Vega are two hitmen out to retrieve a suitcase stolen from their employer, mob boss Marcellus Wallace. Wallace has also asked Vincent to take his wife Mia out a few days later, where Wallace himself will be out of town. Butch Coolidge is an aging boxer who is paid by Wallace to lose a fight. The lives of these seemingly unrelated people are woven together, conspiring in a series of funny, bizarre, and uncalled for incidents. And that really is a concise way of saying there are three major plots going on in this movie. What a clean way of summing up this yeah. this movie. If somebody if you had asked me to do that, I'd have rambled. No, if I if I had I, I copied this from I think it's either IMDB or Wikipedia, I'll be completely honest, that's where I got this this that's very plot clean. synopsis. Because if I had typed it out it'd be three pages long, let's be talking right now. Absolutely. It's it's such a complicated story. But it's such a simple story at the same time. It's Almost cliched in, 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 when you think about it. So, uh, the cast. We've spoken about the cast. Let's go a little bit in, a little bit in depth of the cast. Samuel L. Jackson, James Winfield, the man in this movie. I think he's, he stole the show with his performance. From cocky, arrogant, hitman to seeking redemption. Arguably the best dialogue was given to Jules. Yes. Ha- I, I think, hands down, quotable... Natural too. Yes, absolutely. It didn't feel like Jackson was struggling to play, and that—that that, again, we've we've said it before. None of these guys seemed to struggle because it just seemed like they were amplifying their own personalities, as opposed to maybe acting a character. Uh, Travolta is Vincent Vega, a heroin addict, also a mobster. 
uh, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, sorry, Jude Winfield's partner, and great, great role. Showed a lot of vulnerability, which you wouldn't expect from Travolta. And you wouldn't have expected it when you first started watching this movie either. No. That, we, that he would have been so vulnerable. I mean, I know there's the meme going around right now with Travolta looking around with the jacket on, you know, shaking, you know, wondering what the heck to do. But I mean, how he pulled that off, John Travolta is not known for his acting range at all. And I mean, it's nothing against him. Some people are, some people aren't. But he went on a journey in this movie and, you know, it ends up with his death, unfortunately. But at the same time, in the in the span of the movie, he's like he's also cocky and arrogant and cock of the walk, and then all of a sudden, he's nervous and he's he's petrified basically during the uh, the Mia Wallace scenes because oh, yeah. that's the that's the big man's wife. Then you've got uh, Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. I love those two. Those two were so good together. I thought their chemistry was just like off the charts. Those are two. Their scenes were my favorite scenes. Yeah, I think from from the movie. Definitely, uh, d- definitely some of my favorite scenes too. Uh, he had Bruce Willis as Butch Coolidge, a washed-up boxer named after President Calvin Coolidge. Didn't know that. Yes. Had no idea. He's named he's named after Calvin Coolidge. Um, it actually I'll actually go a bit further into details why he was named the way he was. A uh, washed-up boxer rips off Marcellus Wallace, and he doesn't necessarily go on a journey. But he goes from being despondent to confident in the space of his timeline, oh, in, yeah. in, in his story. Um, I thought he did a really, really good... I thought Bruce Willis did a really, really good job. Um, but then again, is it really a hard job if you're an action star to play a washed-up boxer? No, I don't think it was challenging for him. No. At all. Like, um, John Travolta's was a little, role was. was there. And... Bruce Willis, God bless him. He he did a really really good job. Um, the whole scene in the the pawn shop basement, you could see the moral dilemma on his face. But it just it, it he tried. I th- I thought with all again all due respect to Bruce Willis, I couldn't pull the part off. But at the same time, the one thing that he was lacking was the correct anger and emotion during that last scene where he saves Marcellus Wallace from oh, yeah. Zed and his brother. It was a little bit too um. Even killed. Yes, he he wasn't frantic. He wasn't panicked, and he wasn't. He didn't even look angry. No, and I don't know if that was on purpose or how the scene was written. But I would have en- I would have enjoyed a little bit more um, jazzed reaction. And I think I think part of it is because the way you mentioned the way it was written, he looked like he was heading out the door. The character looked like he was heading out the door. Then he changed his mind. But even if you change your mind and you decide, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and be the hero, you still get a little amped and, and pumped. You should, you should get a little amped and pumped. It was too subtle. Yes. If it was if it was written that way, it was a little bit too subtle. It's like, look, I have the hammer in my hand. No, wait. I got the baseball bat. No, wait. And he didn't, like, pick up the hammer and swing it and throw, you know, he was very, very measured and, and careful. Uh, Marcellus Wallace is played by Ving Rhames. Wow. He's got a great voice. Uh, great voice. Um presence just the presence he is a he, he's a big intimidated man and he played that big intimidated man with the his voice is even intimidating even when he's trying to be i want to say calm or you know um comforted but mm-hmm. at least he sounds intimidating even when he's he's level-headed oh yeah yeah um you had rosanna arquette and eric stoltz as lance and jody who were the uh drug dealers for uh, Vincent Vega and a lot of other people. Interesting fact: they are. It's explained that they are on the payroll of Marcellus Wallace. He's the one who supplies them so that they can they can deal. Um, you had Maria de. I cannot pronounce this name. My apologies. Maria de Meridos as Fabienne, who is uh, who likes blueberry pancakes and a pot belly. God bless her. She's yes, she does. I think I think her portrayal is very very good, and a lot of people say that she sounds like a klutz, cluelessly, you know, and not not very intelligent. And mm-hmm. no, I just put that down to her character not being not having English as a native language, and so she's struggling to find the words to say because yeah, it's not natural for her. Yeah, I thought I thought her character was a little flat, but but I think she needed to be a little flat because Bruce Willis's character was a little flat. Too. Yeah, they couldn't have outshined each other. They were they, they, they were they equally. Had to be, yeah, they had to be as equally I don't say dull, but as equally 
relaxed and laid back. Yeah. Uh, Tarantino makes an appearance as Jimmy, the uh, owner of the house and one of the most racist men in the movie. Uh, and Harvey Keitel as Winston Wolf, the wolf. What a character. I think he should have got his own spin-off movie. Uh, yeah, he needs needs his own spin-off. Unfortunately, the character kind of killed its own reputation by doing uh, car insurance commercials in the UK. But, you know, it happens. People need to get paid. Um, you know, that's why we will be endorsing Orange Fanta. Orange Fanta. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but if you are from Fanta listening to this, please send me some. You're absolutely delicious in your dream. <laughs> so let's have a look behind the camera. Let's look behind the scenes of the movie. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of weird and wonderful stories coming out of this production alone, which make it, which, again, enhance... When you know these things, it'll enhance your viewing experience. I guarantee you that. I guarantee you that. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, John Travolta was on a severe downward, downward trajectory uh, in his film career and accepted like 150 grand to make this movie. And his usual fee was like, at the time, two or three million dollars. Again, adjusted for inflation, kids, before you think that's not a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> did you see any of, any of Travolta's movies in the intervening time? I know, th- I know they wouldn't have necessarily been in, in order because you would have been a baby baby. But um, just like the movies he did in that era, have you have you seen any of them? Do you know much about them? Can you name some? That's the answer. That's <laughs> the answer right there. And that that again, not to not to be a pain to Travolta, but um, yeah, no, his movies either nobody saw, or those who did see it wanted their money back, with the exception, obviously, of, of I mentioned, look who's talking. Um, Bruce Willis was on the same trajectory too. And as I mentioned, him with Die Hard and also Look Who's Talking, you take them out the way. And his career was kind of stagnant I can't as think well. of anything he's done in, in that, in the early 90s. And Bruce Willis kind of is a little wooden in his acting. He can pull emotion out, but he, he doesn't do it as much. It's like, I, I get the movie, I'm Bruce Willis, I can do what I want kind of deal. He plays the same character. Pretty much. In a lot of his movies. I mean, look, I'm, I've mentioned before, I'm a big Kevin Smith fan, and there was a big beef between Kevin Smith and Bruce Willis over, uh, I think it was Cop Out. Because I know they worked a Die Hard movie together, which is what led to Cop Out. And they both said that they were, they had a hard time working with each other because their styles didn't match. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say Bruce Willis is hard to work with. He's kind of a perfectionist, and he kind of has a little bit of an ego. But then again, with the amount of good films that he has done, you can kind of, I don't want to say uh, excuse that, but you can understand it. Right. Um, the word f- is said 265 times in this movie in one form or another. And 260 of those are Samuel L. Jackson. Uh- <laughs> but, but you know what? A lot of people will say that four-letter words are used just to, you know, Use- fill space. Yeah. But... You know, in this, for this movie especially, I think it was, they were all warranted. Yeah, I mean, you know, so, some people use them as, as as punctuation, commas, periods, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But, um, I mean, there are, there are some places where it can be like that, mm-hmm. but then there are some cases, you know, where, like, for example, you know, uh, the, the Winston Wolf scene. He's gotten really, really irritated with Travolta's character, you know, getting on him and he said look i talk fast i act fast i move fast if you can't keep up with me then that's that's your problem not mine that's the way i am we're in a situation we got to take care of it you know so you want me to say please fine pretty please with sugar on top clean the car it was it was exasperation rather than blankety blank 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 now you know yeah so um which is another reason why wolf needs his own movie uh john travolta is not a heroin addict never taken heroin and apparently he needed, he, he wanted to do this as method as possible. Okay. But he didn't want to become addicted to heroin. So how do you get the heroin addiction without without being addicted to heroin? Well, uh, Tarantino recommended go and see a recovering addict friend of his and to explain the best way to how to feel like you were on heroin without being on heroin, kind of like a junior dose, for lack of a better term. Uh, so... This is how you do it. You drink tequila, and you go in a hot tub. And then when you get up and walk around, the the, the feeling of the heat and the tequila will kind of put you in that in a very, very small part of that minute state. Now, 
Disclaimer right here, ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages, the Because Maybe podcast does not encourage you to take heroin or drink tequila in a hot tub. But if you decide to do it, that's your own problem, not mine. Just wanted to say that right now. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I think I think in that scene where he's driving the car and he's, you know, feeling it, yeah. that the soundtrack also, that bass line, yes. also, you know, puts you as a viewer more in that mindset yes. as well. And it keeps it, it doesn't take you out of it. It's, if they'd thrown something else in there, that it probably wouldn't work. But yeah, definitely keeps you keeps you invested, keeps you in there. Um, for the religious folks listening to this, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen is spoken by Samuel L. Jackson during the execution of uh, at the beginning of the movie. It's not the full verse. It it takes a little bit from it, but it's its own creation. And that to me is one of the greatest movie quotes of all time. It's, Hands down, it's complexity. It's a, it's a, it's a thirty five forty five second monologue using biblical terms and. One thing I can say about biblical terms is that uh, they like their long syllables. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, fun fact that I don't know if anybody knows. In Louisiana, uh, a year or two ago, um, a young man was standing behind somebody at a store who was robbing mm. the cashier. And the guy behind the robber started quoting Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. And the robber got scared and left. (laughs) That's brilliant. So it's powerful. It says everything you need to know about what's going to happen to you, who's going to do it to you. And it's very intimidating. It's a scary quote. Now, for all the uh, Marvel movie geeks out there, uh, I think it's in one of the Avengers movies. Nick Fury who is played by Samuel L. Jackson, visits, visits the cemetery. And he looks at a headstone, and the headstone says, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, the path of the righteous man. So I thought I thought that was cool, even though I'm not a fan, like I said, even though I'm not a big fan of those those movies, it was great. Um, three roles were written specifically for the actors who they were there. Now, he wrote, he wrote every role with someone in mind, but three roles were particularly written, I have to have this guy or gal to play it. Those were Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, Amanda Plummer, and uh, Tim Roth, who I thought did really, really good, and Harvey Keitel. Because I don't think anybody else could have been any of those characters. No. I mean, you could. I mean, okay, fair enough. You could have uh, Samuel L. Jackson as someone else. You could have Michael Myers as Vincent Vega. You could have, you know, you could have somebody as somebody else. But these three, I think, are the only ones you can look at and go, "Yeah, that's them." That's they them. look like the characters. It's natural, and nobody could have delivered the dialogue. And Amanda Plummer, Amanda Plummer's angry voice too. I love that voice. I know a lot of people think it's screechy and everything, but I, I love it. I think... It's genuine. Yeah, it's a genuine voice. It also shows a darker side to whatever character play and personality because the the best way I can describe it is like the police the chick from Police Academy. Mm-hmm. Please stop. Please stop. Move! You know, it's kind of... When she gets that primal voice in her, you can tell that her character is either angry or snapped in, in some way. Uh, so I Married an Ex-Murderer was a great example of it. Unfortunately, she didn't break out the voice in The Hunger Games, which, you know... Oh, well. Now, did you ever wonder what was in the briefcase? Oh, absolutely. I mean, who who doesn't watch that and go, What's in the case? Why are all these people get dying, yep. getting shot at? You know, why? What What's in this box? And, you know, I did my own fair bit of research when I, you know, yep. got really into the internet. But I have my own theories. Everybody has a theory. What, what is your theory? I mean, I I agree with the select group that it's Marcellus Wallace's soul. Yep. I believe it. I, I believe that too. That's... I don't care what anybody says. And what what makes it, you know, I've got a list of things that, that, that it could be, and I'll get to Marcellus Wallace's soul in a minute. Some people say it's the gold Elvis suit from True Romance, which... It's too basic. It's too, yeah. Uh... The diamonds from Reservoir Dogs. Which, too expected. Yeah, th- and that's what Tarantino Avery said. said, no, that's just too, everybody, yeah, that's... It's too clingy to the universe. It's It would bring everything, like, too yeah. close together for Tarantino, I think. But Marcellus Wallace's soul. That's 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 the general consensus. When they open it up, they see it. The uh, combination of the briefcase is... 666. 666. Come on. And urban legend dictates that when the devil takes your soul, 
it is removed from the back of your head. Mm-hmm. Now, Tarantino and Ving Rhames claim that while he was shaving his head, he nicked his neck and he had to put a, he had to put a Band-Aid on it. But come on. A convenient, convenient. excuse. It's too convenient. It's too convenient. Um, Tarantino is too much of an artist and a genius to not have done that deliberately. Definitely. I mean, look, Tarantino is very, very particular about everything. Very, very particular about every single thing. I mean, he uses uh, cereal in his movies. Uh, cereal brands that don't exist anymore, like the uh, the monster cereals. Frankenberry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frankenberry Frank and, Frank and, uh, Boo Berry and stuff like that. And... He wouldn't just, hey, let's put a briefcase in there. What's in the briefcase? Well, the briefcase is, and I quote, whatever the viewer wants it to be. Get out of here. That's, no, that's not Tarantino. Come on, Quentin. Yeah, we know better than that. Give your fans what they want. But I say Marcellus Wallace's soul. The other thing I could say is uh, gold. That's the only other thing it could be. Because what I want my soul back or I want my gold back. Nobody cares about an Elvis suit. Unless the Elvis suit was, you know... Are you going to sell it for your soul? Are you going to trade the Elvis suit for your soul? Yeah, I mean... This is pre-eBay, too. Uh, <laughs> now, Bruce Willis's character... Bruce Willis was perfect in his role as Butch Coolidge, mm-hmm. but he almost didn't get the part because the character wasn't in the original draft. He wasn't supposed to be a washed-up boxer. He was supposed to be more of an up-and-coming boxer. So they wanted a younger character to play the character that eventually became... And I think it was Matt Dillon who was originally uh, earmarked for that. I I can't see that. I can't see it either. I I just... uh, I don't know. Maybe because Matt Dillon's played so many sleazy characters. Because Butch isn't a sleazy character, so to speak. He's just a down-on-his-luck washed-up boxer that takes a dive and then double-crosses the dive. That's happened before. It's not sleazy, so to speak. It's not grimy. Taking the dive is grimy or sleazy, but he doesn't present himself as sleazy. He doesn't present himself as honorable either. No. He just presents himself as somebody who was given a large sum of money, bet on himself to win, won, and fled. But Matt Dillon's just... Matt Dillon just looks greasy and sleazy. I'm he sorry. Would have, he would have ruined that aspect of his character. Yeah. The whole thing wouldn't have been right. No, just, definitely mm-hmm. not. I mean, I can't imagine him running over Ving Rhames' character for a set. Marcellus Wallace getting run over in the street. I can't see it. Not by Matt Dillon. No, not by Matt Dillon. Uh, me or Marcellus Wallace, husband and wife, do not share a single spoken word between them on camera. And they're only in two scenes together. And very, very briefly at that. And it plays up the importance of their marriage, too. You know, like Tony Rocky Horror gets thrown off a, off a building. Now he's got a speech impediment. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> that's one of my favorite lines. <laughs> The amount of effort that Tarantino put into establishing that these were it, these two people were in love and it's the boss's prize and, and she's very, very safe with the boss and so on and so forth. They don't share any dialogue. They don't share it. She puts his hand on his shoulder once during the phone call between Marcellus Wallace and Winston Wolf. Mm-hmm. That's it. To me, that I don't know if stuff got cut out in that point. I've not been able to find anything that says otherwise. I don't know, but but you know, at the same time, I've read somewhere that married people, this doesn't apply to everybody, disclaimer, <laughs> that married people don't have to constantly touch or engage no. in PDA. So I think that from my perspective, it just shows that they are very comfortable in their marriage, trusting of each other. She, You do your thing, I do my thing, yeah. and we'll talk about it over dinner kind of thing. True. And a lot of marriages are like that, and I, you know, I I would like to say mine is like that, but I'm a very very clingy person, just as Sarah. Uh, <laughs> but talking of uh, Mia Wallace, uh, there's a deleted scene where she intimates that all men are either Elvis guys or Beatles guys, and Tarantino didn't cut that part out of the script for the movie because she calls uh, John Travolta's character an Elvis man, mm-hmm. an Elvis man like he will appreciate this. And okay, that make that doesn't make any sense. Why why is she talking about Elvis? But it turns out her theory is there are two kinds of people in life. You're either an Elvis fan or a Beatles fan, Beatles man. And unfortunately, I don't know what the context is behind them because that's all that's ever mentioned of them. But it's ironic that both Jules and Vincent are described as Beatles and Elvis men. Personally, Jules is described as an Elvis man. Uh, sorry, Jules is described as a Beatles man, which is why he keeps calling Pumpkin Ringo. I love that. What you doing, Ringo? You know. So um. <laughs> and then Vincent, as we said, is an Elvis man. Try not to be square. Uh, you couldn't see me doing the thing with my fingers. 
But he did it, and that's what counts. That's right. <laughs> the scenes where Tarantino was actually on screen were, uh, some of them at least, were fil- were directed by uh, Robert R- Robert Rodriguez. Excuse me, my apologies for the stuttering of the name. Those two, those two, are like you, you can't separate them at that point, you know, with Dust Till Dawn and so on and so forth coming from it. You can't, and I think that it's a testament to their like symbiotic creative relationship. Yeah, definitely. That um, they can, you know, their scenes can be like in the middle of a movie, and you can't tell where one director ends and one begins and one begins they trust each other and they can see each other's vision yeah it's almost like with some directors and some actors there's a, a certain amount of professional jealousy and so forth but i think when they when they work together or even they work independently of each other there's never that with them two and i think they threw kevin smith in there as kind of like the little brother of the, of that trio and I know a lot of people say Kevin Smith, but at the at a time you got to remember Kevin Smith was the biggest independent filmmaker in the United States, and he did have a huge following. Clerks and Chase and Amy and Dogma are three very, very, very good movies. And you know, okay, fair enough. He had some of the, the sideways with Mallrats. I didn't think that was as good. And Jane Silent Bob Strike Back was what it was, and it was intended to be that. You know, but at the same time, the stories that came from all those, you know. Smith was definitely in the background, maybe not working with them, but at least looking for advice, and they would give it to to him in the same way without trying to cut his creativity off, which they wouldn't do with each other. Right. So, but yeah, they are very, very, very symbiotic. Uh, the adrenaline shot. I couldn't watch it. I still, to this day, cannot watch the scene where he stabs her in the heart with the adrenaline, adrenaline shot. I can watch it, but at the same time, it's like... How do you not? I have too many questions, and and I'm I know nothing about you know medical practices or no. whatever, but I can imagine that in any situation where that's happening, I wouldn't want this movie to be the training video right. for somebody to save my life. Now, how they shot this? It had a spring-loaded um, needle. I'm glad, but they had to pierce uh, Uma Thurman's skin. Oh, it did? Yeah. So they had to pierce the skin, maybe only a millimeter or two, just okay. enough to leave the, the mark there. Because that's one thing Tarantino likes. He likes, authentic- if he can do it authentically without hurting someone, he'll do it. Oh, right. Um, so he kind of, they did it backwards. So they they kind of put the needle inside her. Mm-hmm. And then when they yelled action, they yanked it out of her as opposed to stabbing her with it. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. So good, and you can't tell. No, you, you can't tell. tell. Now I c- I couldn't tell when I read when I when I read that doing the research. I'm like, get out of here. No, uh, no. That's... For the longest time, I was convinced that they actually yeah. stabbed her, and it traumatized me. <laughs> and to be honest, I did too. I mean, there's there's no way you could have done that without it, especially when she said something sticking out of her. I'm like, it's too gritty. Yeah, it's too real. And Uma Thurman trusts Tarantino enough. That if he said it would be okay, she would have agreed to do it. You know, you can just look at Kill Bill, for, for example. Um, yeah. Butch Coolidge is named after President Calvin Coolidge. And the reason I know that is because his opponent was named after Woodrow Wilson. It was Coolidge v. Wilson. Yeah, see all your history buffs out there. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there are two long takes in this movie, which is like a Tarantino hallmark. Uh, it's when Butch walks from his car to his apartment. So as he's going through downtown LA, going through all all the back doors and everything, that's just one take and one shot. And you see, you, and the other one is another walk from a car to a hotel yeah. room. I wonder, obviously that was on purpose, yes. the car to, to a room. You know, yeah. I wonder what Tarantino was thinking. Like, well, what symbolism he was trying to put in, if any, I don't know. I don't think he was, but I think that showed how good his actors were. Because when you do a long shot, it's like two, three minutes a piece. Yeah. Well, that, guy, that guy's got to stay in character. If there are lines, got to know his lines, got to know every single one of his markets. It's like theater. The best, act, the best actors in this world are not on film, they're on stage. So when you do a long shot, you have to have a stage mentality because there are no cuts. There are no... The show must go on. You've got to nail it, otherwise... Right back to the beginning and start again. And they're very expensive to do, right? Yes. Long, the longer shots, yeah. right? Because you have to, you, you, at the time at least, now it's more digital, but back then you had you actually had film film, you know, so to get that developed and you make a mistake with a long shot, you've got, what, 24 frames a second or 60 frames a second. Let's, let's say 24. And for, what, 200 seconds? And each frame is about, I don't know, 
36 millimeters. So that's like, that's a good 50, 60, 70 feet worth of film right there. And that stuff's not not cheap. Not cheap. Not cheap at all. Um, Marvin was originally supposed to be shot in the throat to be mercifully killed by uh, Jules and Vincent. That wouldn't have worked. It would not. It would not have worked. It, the wolf would not have been able to shine. No. Jimmy wouldn't have been able to to shine. No. I, I think. Yeah, th- that worked out well. And especially since they read it and they went to Tarantino and said, "Look, what if what if we just accidentally shot him in the face?" And I liked Marvin. I, I liked think Marvin, Marvin was a nice guy. What's your opinion on Marvin, man? I don't even have an opinion. Oh, you've got to have an opinion. Bang, dead. Uh, and. The the last major thing in the movie that kind of sets it up for, you know, sets it up for themes and stuff like that is every time Vincent goes to a bathroom, something happens that's not good. You had Mia's overdose by snorting heroin, uh, the robbery at the restaurant, and then it leads to his own death. Because he, you know, he left his gun where somebody could get a hold of it and shot him. Stupid, stupid hitman. Uh, <laughs> but, um... This, but one of the things that Molly mentioned earlier is this film is very, very, very quotable, and it has some very, very big scenes that you know, you 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 look and they're just so iconic. Jack Rabbit Slims, that whole scene is the dance and the oh, I I didn't I be honest I don't like the dance scene. The dance scene seemed seems a little out of place, but can you imagine Pulp Fiction without no, the dance you, scene? Okay. Now, um, you know. When my dad used to take me to Sonic and I would want a milkshake, I would always order my milkshake, Amos and Andy, and I would want my five dollar shake, and that's the only way to do it now. Now you 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 know the answer to this. I want I want to, I want to test people. Okay. You can have it as Amos and Andy, and what was the other suggestion? Martin and Lewis. Martin and Lewis. Do you know what that meant? Couldn't tell you what it meant. <laughs> Chocolate and vanilla. They were both they were both comedian comedy duos during the fifties, and one was a black comedy duo, the other was a white comedy duo. So they were, so basically he was asking, chocolate or vanilla? Now you know that's Steve Buscemi. Yes. I couldn't tell because of the eyes, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but that's his hallmark is his features, absolutely. his eyes. Buddy Holly is Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi is Buddy Holly. I am ashamed that I didn't know that it was chocolate and vanilla. Just take my take my Pulp Fiction fan card away from me. But then again, every time you got a chocolate shake, I bet you got you. you oh, okay, I know what that is now. Now I will. Should a five dollar shake have bourbon in it? Uh, yes. All shakes should have bourbon in them. I mean, it doesn't matter where you get them from. That's why you carry a little flask with you. Just a little flask. Done. Um, Jules and Vincent in the apartment talking about the big Kahuna burger. Mmm, that's a tasty burger. The original Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. Which I thought if he took the end of that one and the beginning of the, of the, of the second time, he says, I think those two would be perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, the overdose scene, Mia Waltz overdose, where he's driving on a cell phone in 1994, screaming down the street. You can feel the tension. I mean, yeah. it was very well done. Yeah, definitely. And you could, see, you, could almost, you could almost smell the fear coming off of Eric Stoltz's character at that point when he finds out it's Marcellus Waltz's wife. But I do have a question. Where were all the other cars? Three o'clock in the morning in Los Angeles. Yeah, I, I can. Isn't understand. LA always hopping? I've never been. The only I LA, the either. only LA, the, the only place I've been is South Central Louisiana. For <laughs> uh, <Poor> you. <laughs> uh, hello to all of our uh, Alexandria listeners, by the way. Magic people talk out of soundbox. And Baton Rouge. Give, whoop, whoop. give me six. Uh, sorry. Uh, the Captain Coon scenes. Christopher Walken. His, Christopher Walken's the man. Too. His best. It's his best performance. It it just and that poor kid, right? I I read that the kid who he's reading it to is just sitting there, mouth open, kind of. He hasn't got a clue what Christopher Walken is saying. Which I think made the scene better, because if the kid knew what he was actually talking about, Ew. it would have. It wouldn't have been so. No, life changing. But even the ca- even the, not not just the, not just the actor, but the ki- the actual kid himself. When he oh. went off camera, he didn't have a clue what. That, oh. Mommy, why is that? Why is that man saying weird things to me? <laughs> oh my gosh! But that's Christopher Walken, though. You know, you kind of expect that. Uh, Marcellus Wallace and Butch when they get uh, caught in the pawn shop. 
it's an iconic scene. I'm I, I'm not comfortable watching it. You know, it's it's and and for the record, I'm not comfortable watching any scene like that in any movie featuring any character. Absolutely. You know? Um, but the way it was dealt with, I guess, was kind of vigilante justice. With a set of blowtorches and some pliers. And a shotgun straight to the groin. You know. And a samurai sword. The wolf, the wolf scene, we've mentioned that several times too. I mean, again, that's that's fantastic. Javi Keitel does a fantastic job. The diner holdup. That's great too. Uh, the actors did a great job, I yeah. thought. But not just that, some of the quotes that we use in there. You know, the, the, the redemption of Samuel L. Jackson's character. And the dog versus pig debate. I thought th- I, that's one of the most underrated uh, quotable scenes of the film. It really is. We When we had the soundtrack and we would listen to it, it has the Royale with Cheese yes. scene and it has the dog versus pig as a track. Yeah. And Mama memorized it and we would go back and forth and randomly and... And just go through it. For, for people who don't know, are, are people who wonder why are you talking about the dog versus pig thing? It's like, do you eat bacon? He said, no, I don't eat filthy animals. Well... But do you like dogs? Oh, I love dogs. Dogs have personality. So what if a pig had personality? There has to be one charming pig. I thought that... It's an underrated line. It's an underrated line in a movie full of great catchphrases. Yeah. I personally don't like the Royale with cheese line. It just... I it's, guess because I'm European. Oh. And it just... The magic of it's lost on you. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Royale with cheese. Well, yeah, I... Okay, what's so cool about that? You know, and and for the record, at the time in Europe, we did have kind of a hybrid metric system going on at the time. We, at least uh, in Britain, anyway. We, you know, oh the the day that we switched from from pounds to kilograms. Oh my word! Some people are still in therapy because of it. <laughs> Hi, ma'am. Uh, and then shooting Marvin in the face. Poor Marvin didn't deserve that. He didn't. I like Marvin. He did not deserve it. Well, then again, though, he might have deserved it because he didn't want him with the guy with the hand cannon coming out the bathroom. True. Uh, <laughs> the soundtrack to this movie is uh, predominantly surf rock with soul, contemporary pop, and country mixed in, but it's not that contemporary. When even for its time, no, it's not. It was a lot of sixties and seventies music in there, so it's the equivalent now of making a movie and putting eighties and nineties music on there. I guess in in the soundtrack, um, I, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, so I apologize. Uh, Miss Larue. Misery Lou. Misery Lou is the most famous track on the soundtrack. Um, the way it was played, I, I I love it. I think, you know, a surf version of an old Greek classic. You it's know, perfect. It's it's absolutely perfect. And if I'd had the money, that would uh, an equivalent of that would be the theme music of this podcast. Uh, you've, you've heard it. I've played it for you before. It's, yes. it's a fantastic song. But I guess we'll just have to learn. <coughs> Donations, please. Um <laughs> But none of the tracks, like I said, none of the tracks were considered modern and contemporary at the time, which I think added to the timelessness of everything. Yeah, it did have a cell phone, but I think that was the only thing that connected it to its era. But you know what? Like, like Sex in the City doesn't have cell phones, and it's such a dated series. You yeah. could watch Pulp Fiction at the same time. It's kind of like suspended in this weird in-between time, and the... Um, soundtrack didn't date it. Right. And and that's a good thing with Tarantino soundtracks as a whole. Yeah. I mean, look, the Kill Bill, Kill Bill Volume 1 is one of the best soundtracks I've ever listened to. And, again, not modern in the slightest. Okay, it's got some of, of the verbal clips in there, but, I mean, don't let me be misunderstood. At the time, that was, a, what, a 30-year-old song that wasn't even a huge classic at the time. Yeah. So it kind of, you know, kind of helped that. Uh, in my opinion, we spoke about it at the beginning of the movie. The critics said it was 9.3 out of 10. I say 10. What do you say? It's a 10. Definitely. It's a 10. <laughs> it's, a, it's a masterpiece. It really is. You can watch it, and every time you watch it, you find something new, something subtle, a new quote that you hadn't thought about in a long time. It, it is what it is. It, it is. Every cast member was perfect for what they did. Um, and the inter- intertwining stories... They could seem a little contrived about how they intertwined, but then again, they worked so perfectly. Every single story weaves its way in there, you know, and... and It wasn't wasn't forced. No. Butch's story was a little bit over the top. Yeah. But it was over the top in the best way. In the context, it wasn't over the top at all. Now, looking back, it's a little... Um, Does have a lot of monologues, 
which is which is strange for any movie to have more than like two or three major monologues, but this has a lot of major monologues of less than at least thirty to forty five seconds apiece. Uh, you have Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. You have uh, Ving Rhames, uh, Marcellus Wallace. His his introduction is a minute and a half monologue. And he has another one, the the pawn shop. You yeah. could say that that's a little bit of a monologue. That that is. Um, I, I I don't know why I I I I don't remember that scene as much as I maybe I should, and maybe be, maybe because you know I don't know. I don't know. It's it's. I'm just not. I, I'm not comfortable with that kind of depiction, even in fiction. Even though I know nothing is happening, I'm still very, very squeamish about stuff like that. You know, even even acting. I've got no problem with 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 murder, but that's that's another thing altogether. No problems with Marvin getting shot in the face. No, I th- actually thought that was one of the most hilarious points of the movie. I I laugh at it. Poor Marvin. I love Marvin. Marvin. Um, it's seen as an independent movie, strangely enough, even though it's got a huge budget and was released on an, a major movie distributor contract i think that's the point it's kind of like a hybrid yeah independent movie ideas and plots with studio backing yeah and and a studio cast because again let's let's read the names off of the cast jackson travolta willis thurman reigns um Keitel, roth Plummer. these are these are heavyweight actors oh yeah they either became heavyweight actors or they walked in as heavyweight actors so that's 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 all star cast. Oh, de- definitely. Oh yeah. And nobody took top villain. In, in as far as I'm concerned, there was no main character in this movie. Oh no! Everybody had their moment to shine. It's it's a movie of supporting supporting actors. I don't think anybody had more than thirty five minutes of screen time. I think that's fair to say. Um, it helped launch or relaunch everybody who was in there. Definitely, definitely Travolta, definitely Bruce Willis. Samuel L. Jackson wasn't necessarily unknown, but he was maybe a B-list level actor. Yeah. He bumped straight up to the A-list. Um, Harvey Keitel was obviously there to begin with. But, you know, it, it, it did relaunch everybody up there and kind of said, look, these, these are good actors. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why this movie was successful. Because everybody was on the downward trajectory or unknown. Mm-hmm. So you weren't seeing Bruce Willis. You were seeing Butch Coolidge. You weren't seeing Samuel L. Jackson. You were seeing uh, Jules Winfield and so on and so forth. I think only Harvey Keitel, you could look at and say that might be Harvey Keitel. Yeah. But everybody else was perfect. That's one of the reasons I like movies like this. Oh, yeah. It had the right amount of humor and the right amount of tension. Yes. And you needed the humor to counterbalance how ultra-violent yeah, this movie can be, and um, you know, if you have a hard time stomaching this kind of thing, you can always take comfort in the black humor. Yeah, definitely. That's sprinkled within. It's, what's weird is that for for a movie as as violent as it's made out to be, there are only six dead deaths in this movie. Yeah, you would you would think, and two of them are off camera. Yeah, I thought there was more. In fact, there's not even that much blood when you think about it. No, the the the. The most bloody scene was Marvin. Yeah, and that's only because you couldn't shoot somebody in the face without that the head exploding for lack of a better term. Um, all the characters are major flaws. I love that. Yeah. I love that in a movie. It makes they're all criminals. Yeah, they're all awful people. Yep, but they're humans, and that's the difference that, that everybody has. So, Pulp Fiction. Instant classic, awesome classic. I would. This is the point on the show where I would normally give a social media question, but you know what? This is the last show for the year. So, but I am super thankful that I've had the people helping me, and I'm super thankful to people like Molly and Molly. Thank you very much for helping me out with this week, uh, getting me through this, because I could have rambled on even longer. Thank you for keeping me in check. Um, this has been so much fun. I've never done anything like this before, and I was a little nervous, but I think. I think I'm much more comfortable now, and I'll want to come back if you'll have me. Invitation is always open, and uh, what I'm going to do in the next couple of weeks is, uh, while well, I've, well, I've got the mic still running, what I'm doing the next couple of days on the blog, I'm going to preview next season's episodes. So, uh, I've already got my wife booked down, I've already got Greg booked down, but whatever's left over, you are more than welcome to come join me, and even if, even if you know what, you can join, you can John, we do th- three-person conversation or whatever, but it's great to have you on board. Thank you very much, and thank everybody for listening to these reviews. We will see you with another review like this in January, but uh, we've got some more stuff coming up, so let's get to that right away.
It was the week before Christmas or whatever, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Okay, mice are nasty, and if you have them in your house, you're disgusting. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care so they can catch fire. Ugh. Look, why can't I just say what I want to say? Right. From everyone here at the Bacats Movie Podcast, we wish you all a very happy and Merry Christmas and holiday season and the best new year. So, I did a little pod thing. Were you buying me the car? Celebrity Lounge presents Deck the Hollows. Friday, December 22nd at 10 p.m. Featuring The Holodecks. All 90s, all the time. Click going on the event on Facebook to be entered for free. The Holodecks gear must be present to win. 21 and up event. Drawing at Celebrity Lounge, December 22nd. Deck the Hollows. Have yourself a 90s little Christmas. From Celebrity Lounge and the Holodecks. My sincere thanks once again to Molly Watson for uh, sitting down with me and talking about Pulp Fiction. I know there are a couple of uh, issues in there in the way we went about some things and it did seem a little bit iffy, but uh, if anybody's upset by that, I apologise. Sincerely apologise. I didn't realise until after we had recorded that it did sound like in terms that I was talking over Molly and I wasn't intending to. So that's my apologies and I promise I will be more cognizant about that in the future. Also wanted to thank Greg Gregory for his appearances on the show this season. Again, without Molly and Greg and without my wife Sarah, I could not have done this podcast. And that's what I want to kind of get into here just before we go ahead and close out the year. Um, I always wanted to do this in a uh, format that I take some time off just to recharge the batteries, revamp the format and so on and so forth. Um, I know a lot of the podcasts that I listen to are weekly. And some are seasonally, like, uh, for example, the Arsecast. Uh, that is a seasonal podcast, um, focusing on the tribulations and trials of Arsenal Football Club. Also listen to the Jackcast, too. But those, because they're more football or soccer to my American folks, uh, you know, they, they only operate during the season, uh, the soccer season in the UK, the football season in the UK. So, you know, um, I want to have the chance to change the format a little bit. You know, just tweak it slightly. You know, don't make it so rigid and regimental. Um, you know, we've got the new day that we're going to be posting everything on. That'll be Sunday from here on out. Um, and, you know, that's just something that, that we're going to do moving forward. We are going to be looking at how we change how we market and produce this podcast as well. Um, the last couple of weeks, as I mentioned, you know, when I, when I posted the video about my uh, state of my mental health when I started doing the Movember Drive, um, I haven't been doing well recently. And so I was only going to take a couple of weeks off and right back into this in January, but I'm going to take a little bit longer off than what I wanted to. When I started this podcast, you know, I wanted it to be a showcase of my uh, voice, my talents, and my production skills. And I think I've done a good job in showcasing that, but I've had so much fun doing it. When you're trying to do the amount of research that is needed for a project like this on a weekly basis, on top of, uh, you know, depression, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, I'm not trying to make excuses, I know, but this weekend I had a really, really bad weekend, which is why you're listening to this on a Tuesday as opposed to our regular Sunday slot. Um, I just didn't have the, the energy, the gumption, or the inspiration to, to, to do it. And even though I had, the, you know, the recording of Molly done for, for a little while, I just didn't feel energized to release anything um and i'm hoping that by taking a couple of weeks and then giving an arbitrary deadline a little bit longer than what i wanted to will give me the time to snap out of it and start afresh in the new year with a slightly tweaked format better research just an all-round better product Uh, i'm very proud of the 12 episodes that we've done and i'm very proud of not just the, the, the episodes that we've done, the subjects we covered, too. Um, I'm very proud of everybody who's taken the time to listen to us. Uh, you have, like, doubled my expectation, trebled my expectations in um, what we have. And I'm hoping to grow. I mean, if you guys are, are on our Facebook page, please, please 
send out links and reminders and stuff like that. I really, really want to grow our audience and, you know, so on and so forth, like I mentioned before. But um, we are going to have... Some things go on during our break. Um, I'm putting out the first Because Maybe Extra episode. Uh, that's been on our YouTube channel for a little while. That features uh, me interviewing my kid who uh, wants to talk to me about uh, Mario Brothers. Um, we're going to be releasing more snippets on our YouTube channel. And, you know, we're just going to go ahead and get on it and do, you know, do what we can in the meantime. But also give us a little bit of a break so that, you know, the pressure is off me. But I am being ambitious. Uh, we are going to do another season, and this season is going to be double what this season was. Uh, I am going to go ahead and say it right now, I am planning on doing 25 episodes for season 2. Uh, from February all the way through August. Kind of doing two seasons at once before that break uh, in the uh, summer. So that's my plan. That's what I want to do. That's what I'm planning on doing. Uh, and I'm also going to rope in Sarah, Greg, Molly. And I'm going to try and get a few other people involved too. You know, people who know the subject. Uh, try and do some things over Skype. And I want you guys to contribute as well. I, you know, I've said before, I have a ton of ideas that I want to do and a ton of subjects that I want to talk about. But if you guys have something that you think would be great talking about, you know, go ahead and let me know. Um, I really, really would appreciate it. It would give me something fun to do, you know, kind of a, a listener's thing. Uh, any new segments that you think I should do? Should I do... I know on the blog I do uh, top 9 lists because, you know, everybody does top 10. So I'm doing 9. Uh, I do top 9 lists. Do you want me to go ahead and do a top 9 show of whatever? Do you have any additional subjects that I need to be approaching? Not just, you know, movies, games, videos, and books. Do you th see, you know, other certain things? Do you have social issues that you want me to touch on and, and see how they affect? Um, you know... Stuff like that, stuff like that. I do have ideas, but, you know, it's interesting to get feedback and hear what, what you guys want to listen to. Because without you guys, I don't have a podcast. And so I've got to do, you know, I've got to do right. I've got to do right by you guys, and I've got to do right by myself as well. And, of course, I'm not trying to be more opinionated with things. Of course not. But, you know, I'm going to put my own uh, my own thoughts and opinions on certain subjects that come through. Um, but, you know, that's all coming up. For right now, I thank every single person who has taken the time to listen to us. I thank every single person who has left us a comment, who has left us a like, a share, who subscribed, just everything. I couldn't have done this without you. This is for episode 12, which is almost over, and we will be back with episode 13, or episode 201, in five weeks. I will see you guys on February 4th, and you know what? We're going to have a great time. But until then, thank you very much. If you guys are on Facebook, look us up Because Maybe Pod. Look us up Twitter and Tumblr Because Maybe Pod. Sign up to our YouTube channel and, and go ahead and read our blog. All of the links are in the description of the podcast. I wish everybody a happy Christmas and holiday season, uh, whatever's your, uh, you know, your specific holiday. I don't want to run through them all right now. Christmas is mine. Uh, but <laughs> And everybody have a great New Year. And you know what? Everybody have a great time. Here is to the end of 2017, and let's begin anew on 2018. Thank you very much, guys. Have a great day. So, I did a little pod thing. Were you buying me the car?